listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Podcast number 55. So in Providence, Rhode Island, earlier this week, a group of hotel workers and a city councilwoman ended a week-long hunger strike just to show how hungry they were for change to the city's minimum wage laws. They were actually campaigning to raise the city's minimum wage to $15 an hour, which was echoing a cry that we've seen coming out of uh, many of the fast food workers and other uh, low-wage worker uh, movements that have cropped up around the country. But they were unexpectedly thwarted by conservatives in the state Senate who have actually pushed for a statewide ban on raising the minimum wage of any locality. Now, the point, of course, is to prevent any cities or towns from going above and beyond what the state sets. In other words, um, structuring the law so that it deliberately keeps the minimum wage as low as possible and also disenfranchises localities from setting their own minimum wage laws that meet their own uh, local residents' needs. So as we've reported before, these types of preemption laws are nothing new. What is new about the Rhode Island situation, of course, is that it's a Democrat-controlled state legislature which basically means that Democrats are throwing workers under the bus. Um, And if you uh, read the fine print on what's going on behind the scenes in the state Senate, you see that some of the um, biggest pushers of this statewide uh, preemption on raising the minimum wage are actually very much embedded with the hospitality industry. Hospitality (laughs) industry is close to the Democratic Party. And guess who's pushing for a $15 minimum wage? Some of the most powerful constituencies that have rallied behind that initiative in Providence are the hotel workers unions and uh, the hotel workers uh, themselves who are, you know, out there hunger striking. So, um, you know, all that's in limbo in the state Senate, but stay tuned because obviously if they're willing to go on hunger strike to demonstrate just how badly they want that $15 an hour, the battle is far from over. Another front in the battle over the minimum wage, the battle over a functional economy for working people. In D.C. this week, the president and a whole bunch of business and labor people met on Monday to have a summit on working families. I'm no note if they invited the Working Families Party. Um, Meanwhile, outside of this summit on working families, a uh, group of low-wage federal contract workers, specifically women who work um, for these federally contracted companies that now include the uh, National Zoo, went on strike, saying that even though President Obama um, had issued an executive order to raise their wages, um, they're saying it's not enough. They need to be allowed to collectively bargain, and they're calling for the president to issue a good jobs executive order that would actually raise the minimum wage for many more workers. Inside the event at the Omni Shoreham Hotel, um, which, full disclosure, I was invited to and was unable to attend, the president said he would sign a presidential memorandum directing again, federal government agencies to expand access to flexible work schedules and give employees the right to request them. Um, That is flexibility so you can do childcare, take sick time, um, work from home if necessary, things like that. Um, Called on Congress to pass the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which is something similar to um, a bill that New York passed fairly recently that we covered on this podcast, allowing pregnant workers to have reasonable accommodations on the job for um, 
the fact that it's harder to stand on your feet for eight hours on end when you were pregnant. Um, and announced that he would direct the Secretary of Labor to invest $25 million in helping people who want to enroll in job training programs but don't currently have the access to the childcare they need to do it. Not exactly sure what that means. We will have to keep you posted on what that ends up looking like. And while things are astir in Washington on the uh, rights and benefits of working women, down in Massachusetts, um, they actually just raised some of those labor standards for about 67,000 nannies, housekeepers, and other domestic workers in the Commonwealth. Massachusetts is now on track to become just one of four states to pass a Bill of Rights for the workers who work in our homes every day. The legislation uh, passed the House overwhelmingly last week, and now it's awaiting the governor's signature. Is similar to a Bill of Rights legislation that's already passed in California, Hawaii, New York. It sets, um, you know, designated rest times. It sets uh, guidelines for working hours. It sets up a process for dealing with work-related complaints, and it brings domestic workers under the protection of uh, basic civil rights laws so that they can challenge things such as uh, sexual harassment, which is um, something that many domestic workers have to deal with really behind closed doors because, remember, these are um, both private homes and, uh, you know, workplaces that these people labor in every day. And the uh, cases of abuse and um, economic hardship and wage theft are rampant in this sector. And so now slowly but surely more and more states are coming around to providing um, in the law explicitly um, parameters for how these workers are to be treated and actually recognizing that they are workers. It's not just women's work, which accounts for the long term uh, historic exclusion of domestic workers on the federal level from many of the core labor protections in, for instance, the Fair Labor Standards Act. So now we see on the state level things are starting to change, and hopefully that'll trickle back up to Washington. <laughs> hopefully. But just in case you are starting to have some hope for things in Washington, um, Last episode, we talked about the Vergara trial in California, where teachers were stripped of their right to tenure, and we noted that that would likely spread. Well, it is spreading, and it will be spread by the former White House press secretary, Robert Gibbs. Um, so, just in case we were wondering which side the National Democratic Party was on, um, not only Gibbs, but former Obama campaign spokesman Ben LaBolt and former Obama aide John Jones, the first digital strategist of Obama's 2008 campaign, will take the lead in a public relations initiative to destroy teachers' right to tenure all over the country. And they're planning on starting right here in New York. Thank you, Democrats. Um, although, to be fair, the campaign in New York is being organized by former CNN anchor Campbell Brown, whose husband is, in fact, a Republican strategist who is deeply involved with the corporate education reform movement. Oh, so it's a bipartisan initiative. Oh, you mean you weren't aware that, right. that bashing teachers was totally bipartisan? Bashing teachers is totally bipartisan. Uh, the Gibbses and the seniors of the world will happily work together when it comes to denying working class, mostly women, the right to a secure job. So, um, here in New York, apparently Campbell Brown aims to spend hundreds of thousands, oh wait, excuse me, she has spent already hundreds of thousands of dollars in recent months to get this effort off the ground. She, no word yet on exactly what her lawsuit will look like, but it will probably include having a few children who are 
you know, theoretically filing this lawsuit, which is actually being paid for by very, very wealthy people like Campbell Brown and being backed by former White House insiders. So, so it's clearly all about the children. Is it's what clearly you're all about the children. We stand for children or stand on children or something, right. something, something. I always go back to what um, New Massachusetts Teachers Association President Barbara Mattaloni calls it predatory education reform because that's really what it looks like when you see how top down and where all the big money is coming from in these issues. In any case, we will no doubt have more on that as it creeps into our home state of New York. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. So this past week, you have quite possibly been watching a lot of soccer or football, as every other country in the world calls it, um, because it's the World Cup. You may have heard less about the protests that have been going on in the streets of Brazil aiming at the World Cup or the large number of wildcat strikes that have been happening. Our guest on today's podcast is Dave Zirin, who just returned from Brazil, where he has been covering the World Cup, the buildup to the World Cup and the 2016 Olympics, which will also be in Brazil. And Dave has written a book about the subject, which is called Brazil's Dance with the Devil, that looks at how these giant sporting events wind up being a neoliberal Trojan horse. So welcome, Dave Zirin, to Belabored. So, Dave, you just got back from Brazil where you were reporting on not the World Cup per se, but what's going on around the World Cup. Um, tell us what kinds of things you saw this week. Wow. I mean, it was a wild couple of weeks down in Brazil. I mean, I saw two things that, that have really just stuck with me so much. I mean, the first is that anger about the World Cup, anger about the spending that's gone into the World Cup, anger about the militarization of public space and the horrific debt. I mean, you see that everywhere. You see it in graffiti. You see it in stickers. You see it in strikes. Like right now, most of the museums in Rio are closed with huge banners in front of it that say greve, which is Portuguese for strike. And you see, uh, I mean, just little demonstrations in the hundreds to the low thousands. So that's one thing I'm bringing back. The other thing I'm bringing back is just the fact that the demonstrations are only in the hundreds and the low thousands. Because a year ago, the demonstrations were marked in the millions, one million, two million. Some say as many as 10 million people, different people were at the streets in different times protesting the World Cup spending. So that immediately then raises a question. How do you go from two million to 2,000 at a demonstration? And I saw it with my own eyes. I felt it with the tear gas that got sprayed into my face, my, my mouth and eyes. I mean, the amount of the, the militarized spectacle of Brazil's elite military police, I mean, is absolutely stunning. And it has really, um, really put people in a position where they're like, wow, if I go into the streets, I might be arrested as a terrorist. I might um, be possible charges and I might get seriously hurt. I've been reading your reports at The Nation from Brazil, and in one of them, you mention talking to a union worker who was put to work tearing down some of the favelas ahead of the World Cup. Um, and that just, that piece struck me because in so many ways, we see people, governments, we see, unfortunately, some labor unions talking, um, putting sort of short-term job 
creation ahead of long-term development that would be better for everyone. I wonder if this was a, a source of tension in Brazil this week while you were, or for the past couple of years since you've been there. Yeah, that, that's a terrific question because remember that the ruling party in Brazil, that they're called the Workers' Party, and right. they're very connected to a lot of the union federations in Brazil. A lot, but not all of the union federations. And actually, union density in Brazil has gone down dramatically under the leadership of the Workers' Party, uh, whose first president, Lula, was, of course, a union leader. And so that's just one of the many results of the fact that they've embraced a, a neoliberal economic approach, which erodes the power of unions. And you've seen that, through that throughout the country. Now, what has that meant in practice? I mean, it's meant like an absolute free-for-all on the labor movement front. I mean, first of all, Brazil has had tons of strikes over the last, say, six to nine months. I mean, every possible sector you could think about, uh, teachers, uh, state workers, World Cup security guards, uh, firefighters, police officers. I mean, so many strikes have taken place. Now, a lot of these strikes have been of the wildcat variety uh, for, for, I know you know what that means, but for, for listeners, you know, over the objections of union leadership. Um, so that, that's a part of it. But another part of it is that some of the unions have chosen to ally them at the, bureau, at the bureaucratic level, have chosen to ally themselves with some of the center-right parties in Brazil and have gone on strike as a way to try to embarrass, pressure, take advantage of the discontent because there are elections coming up this October. But I mean, frankly, if you're not trying to take advantage of the political situation right now as a political organization, whether you're on the left or the right, I mean, you might as well close up shop because it's just, it's incredibly um, crazy. And I didn't mention the most important strikes of all, and I really should have, um, and that's been in transportation. And that's, that has led, you might've seen some of these dramatic figures, I mean, I mean photos, I'm sorry, of, of hundreds of thousands of people trying to enter uh, the subway system in Sao Paulo because like just flooding the steps as if, you know, there, there's like a, people are trying to escape a zombie invasion in the walking dead or something like just crazy rush down the steps because uh, the buses um, were, were on strike and those strikes were wildcat. Those strikes were, were done because uh, the workers were just fed up with the extra work they were being asked to do uh, while not being paid for it. Yeah. Um, in terms of the overall impact on the labor movement, and I guess labor um, in Brazil more generally, um, you mentioned before that many of these are wildcat strikes. Do you see anything long term coming out of this in terms of a grassroots or rank and file uh, shift in the labor movement? Um, you know, specifically because for so long the state and labor have been aligned, at least symbolically. Um, do you see anything sustainable coming out of this? I mean, we already see some of the major protests from last year, some of those trends kind of petering out. So what do you, what do you see this turning into, if anything, after the World Cup? Well, I think what's, what's interesting is that it's not going to go away after the World Cup because Brazil's got to host the 2016 Olympics in Rio. So all of these questions are going to reproduce themselves um, after the World Cup ends. And so I see this sustaining itself at least in the next couple of years um, with, with, the world, with the Olympic prep. And the Olympic prep is more distorted than World Cup prep because a lot of the heavy construction projects and the displacements are only focused in Rio because the Olympics, you know, obviously just one city instead of the World Cup, which is a national operation. But, but it's still going to be a countrywide 
quote unquote sacrifice in terms of the amount of money that has to go into it. That doesn't just come from the pockets of, of Rio taxpayers. That comes from the whole country. So, I mean, I think it's really an open political question, but there's going to be two more years of organizing, two more years of strikes, two more years of protests about some of these priorities that put these mega events that are really just for foreign consumption um, and neoliberal projects and give backs to the all-powerful construction industry than it has anything to do with like actual sustainable jobs or anything that helps Brazilian workers. In your new book, Brazil's Dance the Devil, you compare these major sporting events, the Olympics, the World Cup, to um, the kinds of shocks that Naomi Klein wrote about in The Shock Doctrine as a way for these countries to enact neoliberal policies that they couldn't do otherwise. Um, and as you mentioned, Brazil is ruled by the, the quote, Workers' Party. So how is this kind of stealth neoliberalism playing out differently under a purported leftist party? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the way that it's playing out with the Workers' Party is not dissimilar. I mean, there's a lot of continuity with how the Workers' Party has dealt with neoliberal politics over the last decade since Lula was elected in 2002. But the way it's sometimes talked about is they talk about uh, Brazil being like, they call it neoliberalism with Brazilian characteristics. And it really is different from how neoliberalism has been implemented in a lot of other countries in that um, there's been a lot of attacks on unions. There's been a lot of privatization, you know, the hallmarks of neoliberalism, a lot of bowing down to the IMF. And, but at the same time, there's, there's also been an effort uh, to use some of the windfalls of neoliberalism to aid programs that fight Brazil's historically awful poverty and inequality. And you'll hear people talk about things like the Bolsa Familia program, uh, which are direct payments to the poor um, if they fulfill certain obligations with regards to education and health care uh, with, with their families. Or you hear, and that, that's been paid for, I mean, basically by Brazil's neoliberal growth. Um, there, there's only been one problem, though, and that's that obviously funding social programs through neoliberalism is dependent on an economy that can continue to operate at like a 7.5% growth rate, which is what Brazil was, was rocking in the last decade. And as the economy has slowed, a lot of these programs have withered, which is, I think, what's been the big fuel for a lot of these protests. Just like, because then it's just like, okay, you're just nakedly building these stadiums while we're just suffering in the streets here. So, so to get to your question, though, like the way they've responded um, to the protests is that you, you see a relative to other countries that I've been to over the last 10 years where, where these mega events have taken place, World Cup and the Olympics, there's a lot more carrot and stick in Brazil than I've mm -hmm. seen. And a lot of that has to do with the level of struggle. And a lot of that just has to do with the characteristics of this kind of leftist neoliberal government. Like, for example, um, the, the homeless workers movement in Sao Paulo, uh, they had an occupation of like 10,000 homeless workers who were occupying this huge patch of land next to uh, the stadium where the World Cup was going to start. Uh, the government promised them that after they marched 25,000 people the week before the World Cup through the streets of Sao Paulo, promised them that they would take that land and build public housing if in return they promised not to march. Um, similarly, a lot of the favelas, some of whom were treated incredibly brutally uh, with displacement, these are the, 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 the precarious uh, communities um, in, in 
both the outskirts and also now weaving through a lot of Brazil's big urban centers, um, a lot of these places, um, first they were, ju- they were just throwing people out and, and a lot of brutality because they wanted to tear down the favelas for these events. As favela, um, as favelados, the favela dwellers have, as they've organized and protested, um, they've gotten much more attractive, in some cases, lucrative payouts from the government in return for them leaving uh, because the, the government um, tries to operate like, like really does try to sort of chew gum and, and walk at the same time. Now, I mean, I think the end result of all of this is actually it's, it, it's incredibly brutal and anti-worker, but it shows, like, I think, just a lot of the, the, the weird conflicts that, that exist inside Brazil's ruling party. And I'm sorry if that wasn't clear, but I've literally spent the last three years just trying to figure out what the hell the Workers' Party is all about. And, how yeah. and the shit is complicated. I mean, it, it really is. Like, I don't think, I mean, even trying to find other historic parallels of countries that have tried to leverage neoliberalism for social programs. I mean, it's, it's, it's very bizarre and it hasn't worked. <laughs> it's the most important thing to draw from it. Right. Um, but, but it, but it, but it creates a series of contradictions and confusions that, that are really are tough to, to certainly to unravel in like a 140 character tweet. Yeah. Well, I mean, you lay it out in your book um, uh, in a really interesting way. I mean, you you seem to be outlining kind of the implosion of um, the political uh, and economic, I guess, capital that uh, Lula's regime built up. Um, do you think that it was this could have been foreseen the unsustainability of this program? Because, I mean. I, you know, even people on the left were sort of vaunting Lula's social programs as a way to um, fuse a neoliberal economic plan with a populist agenda, at least on the surface. Um, was this inevitable, this this kind of crash? Well, you know, the, the old expression that it's a lot easier to say what's wrong with a dead body when you do an autopsy than it is to help a live body that's sick. You know, looking back pretty easy to figure it out and looking back you know you read works by people like perry anderson who um basically outlined the ways in which brazil's economy would falter and all of its you know popularity among the working class would falter if there was an economic crisis and there were stalls in in its neoliberal development and it's just like it's sort of like gobsmackingly obvious like of course that's going to happen um but at the time it was very difficult um, for, for a lot of analysts, including, you know, left-wing economists to sort of see clearly what some of the contradictions playing out would inevitably be. Um, and I think one of the things that's made it more confusing is the fact that, I mean, even Perry Anderson and even a lot of like, like Tom Lewis, who's a, um, a socialist who writes about Latin America, he wrote a prescient article about Lula, but even he wrote that eventually Lula was going to come to a crossroads where he was going to have to choose between hardcore neoliberal attacks on workers and, um, and, and actually throwing his lot in with uh, Brazil's working masses. And the thing that I think particularly confuses people because we're so personal, personality-driven in our political analyses sometimes is that Lula never actually had to make that choice. I mean, Dilma, his successor, has made that choice and sided hard with the, with the neoliberals and not... Uh, with the working class, but Lula had to step down from from office because he had um, throat cancer, which is since in remission. 
And in a weird way, he, he got out of having to eventually, he got to leave with the economy at its height. He got to leave with the country already promised the World Cup and the Olympics. Uh, he, he got to sort of like find, pardon the expression, a third way, because uh, it kind of relates to this, the third way politics. But like, but like, you know, that famous line from The Dark Knight where they say you either die a hero or live long enough to become a villain. I mean, Lula kind of got an out from that dichotomy. And I think that's one of the things that's confused people. Right. Well, it seems like a lot of the good fortune has obviously run out. And also the, just the fact that um, Dilma is, is not nearly as popular. I mean, popularity was really something that Lula could really capitalize on, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very true. And I'll tell you, like, like it's also like, um, oh, my God, there's so much to talk about with Brazil. But, but like, one, one of the things, too, is that uh, Dilma has a different background than Lula. I mean, Lula was, was a mass leader. Um, he was somebody, he, he became the IMF's favorite president. I think that was a quote from the Financial Times, the IMF's favorite world leader. Um, he was also someone who protested the IMF in, in 1998. And he had like decades of cred as being this mass labor leader. Dilma, very different background. And it would be also wrong to not also say, there's, I think, a lot of misogyny at work here too, in terms yeah. of how she's talked about and treated compared to Lula. And Lula was, was a real machista in terms of how he would talk in the press a lot of time, um, the occasional homophobic remark and whatnot. Like he would play that game. Dilma not only doesn't play that game, she can't play that game uh, being a woman in Brazil. But it's also true that Dilma comes from like an upper middle class background, unlike Lula. Dilma was more of the kind of like, was like a Guevarist revolutionary more than Lula, who was, you know, union-based mass leader revolutionary. And Dilma, you know, was tortured in the early 1970s by the Brazilian dictatorship. But other than that, I mean, she's had a very quiet political career, very behind the scenes, very technocratic. And it's fascinating to hear her talk about, I mean, it's so weird. Like she talks about being, I mean, you never want to minimize anybody obviously being tortured but she brings it up now the way Obama does the community organizer thing or, you know, Hillary Clinton would t- talks about like, you know, children defense fund. It's like it's like the thing that she holds on to and, right. and uses as a shibboleth to smash people with when they dare say, like, wait a minute, why are you you know all about the rich here? And then she's like, well, 40 years ago, this is what I was doing. What were you doing? Yeah. So have a dynamic like dodging bullets at the airport or whatever it was Hillary did. Oh, and she, yeah. oh yeah. God, I can't believe we have to deal with all this again. Uh, let's just not. Let's not go into that. Not, I'm going to pretend it's not happening for as long as possible. I, I, love, that <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah. Um, anyway, I want to go back to Brazil. Yes. Um, okay. In terms of the athletes themselves, Um, You know, one of the things that I really love about your writing is that you write about this stuff as a sports fan and you write about this stuff as much from the athlete's perspective and the the labor issues that athletes face. Um, I know that, you know, World Cup players are mostly professionals back in teams where they live or sometimes where they don't live, um, as opposed to at the Olympics where we're mostly dealing with unpaid amateurs and all of those issues. But in either case, these athletes are certainly workers in the middle of this kind of um, incredibly screwed up working conditions right now. I'd love to know how you think this is affecting them and the players, and if any of the players are going to speak out about some of this. Oh, man. That, 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 
Once that's a, I, I'm sorry I keep starting every answer by saying that's a great question, but that, that really <laughs> is a great question because one of the things that's been interesting, I mean, first let me just do the basics and then just talk a little bit about what we're seeing. Because the, the very basics are that last year a lot of players on Brazil spoke out um, mm-hmm. on the Brazilian team and said amazing things, like the stars of the team, uh, Neymar, Hulk. I mean, these guys – like they, they said remarkable things like both critical of the government and siding with uh, the protesters. This year, there's been a lot more silence. Nobody questions the fact that there is an incredible amount of pressure on them to be silent. Uh, you haven't heard anything too much from players from other countries. But one of the things that's been interesting about this World Cup is that there are very real labor issues that are that are going on on the pitch. There's been... Um, a lot that's been spoken about on social media, it's gotten very little mainstream coverage, but my God, the, the amount of sending players back into games with concussions, for example. I mean, if the NFL was as brazen about it as, as this World Cup, there would be congressional hearings. I mean, it, it's, been, it's been shameful. And then some of the conditions that the players have had to play in, people, um, listeners might have seen the game in Manaus, uh, in the rain, which is in the Amazonian rainforest, city in the Amazonian rainforest between the United States and Portugal, uh, this was the first time in the history of the World Cup, which you know dates back almost a century, where they actually had to stop the game for for a water break because of the dangerous levels of dehydration, and there was even some criticism that they waited too long for a water break. I mean, there there are just a, an uncommon number of injuries taking place, and these these really are labor issues. And yeah. there are, I mean, if you if you're if we're talking about exploitation, particularly on the basis of how much someone makes relative to how much they produce, it's difficult to think of a more exploited sector of of athletes, of professional athletes, than soccer players. Like relative to the popularity of the sport, how much they make, how hard they're worked. I mean, every game they're running about seven and a half miles on average, um, and that's in a 90-minute game in the heat. And, oh, by the way, they're also playing soccer. Like, for, for anyone out, if you have any, like, marathoners who are like, seven and a half miles in 90 minutes, that's not, such a, that's not so great. It's like, hey, they're also playing soccer, too. Um, and so, so there's a lot going on there. But when I watch these, these players, particularly, um, frankly, because they're all – are in such amazing physical shape and those Puma skin tight shirts as well. I mean, it's just like, dear God, like these guys are just in, in remarkable physical condition. It reminds me of a quote that um, this Washington football player retired named Brian Mitchell once said to me about, he was a big, he's a big union guy. And he said to me about athletes and labor. He said, what, what a lot of people don't understand is that athletes are workers, but we're also the product of our work like a chef is a worker and a steak is the product of a chef's work the athlete is the chef and the steak and you see that on the field that it's like okay that the, the, their machinery uh that the, the, their environment everything is like in the body itself which which can of course sometimes lead to to, to disaster yeah um 
Can you talk a little bit for, you know, for our American listeners who may not be as familiar with the um, commercial behemoth that is FIFA, can you talk about the upper levels of this structure of exploitation? Um, We've heard a lot about corruption scandals, but I get the sense that the rot really runs deeper than just, you know, the odd bribe here and there. So could you explore that? Sure, sure. I mean, FIFA is uh, the the international the, the the organization that oversees international soccer. It had remarkably humble origins, uh, which makes it different than, say, the International Olympic Committee, which these two organizations are now basically twins in terms yeah. of how they operate on the global neoliberal uh, landscape. But while the International Olympic Committee started with you know these you know, huge payons to basically to like white man's burden and imperialism and the civilizing powers of sports and, and all this, this aristocratic late 19th century crap. Uh, FIFA basically started because it was like, okay, this sports soccer is exploding. Some countries use their hands, other countries tackle. We actually need some rules. So very humble beginnings for FIFA, but it, it has since morphed. Um, into this kind of uh, multi-billion dollar behemoth with unbelievable amounts of power and sway throughout the world and very little democratic decision-making, um, which, which makes it even difficult to assess how decisions are made, why they get made, why decisions are made, like awarding the cup to Qatar, for example, um, in 2022, um, which I know you want to talk about a little bit, but just like decisions that are unfathomable and make no sense whatsoever. Um, like John Oliver said, the comedian, he said, if you know, there's a bribery scandal around the World Cup going to Qatar, he said, I really hope there was bribery involved because without that, this makes no sense whatsoever. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's very true. That's very true. But, but the thing about FIFA, like some people say it's only as powerful as, as the sort of national federations that are a part of it. Um, but the, the thing about it is that it also has, it has a great deal of cash reserves and it's in charge of television rights and it's yeah. in charge of choo- choosing the sponsors for, for, for events. And that gives it a lot of power, like in, in so many different areas, it gives it a lot of power in corporate America. It gives it a lot um, of power internationally in terms of brands that are trying to reach out to other countries like China has been very desirous of hosting these international sporting events, as was Brazil and um, India and Russia, you know, BRIC countries. And, and a lot of this, you know, that makes you know, corporate, corporate America, then FIFA a very powerful broker um, in corporate America. And it also puts it in a position where it wants to make sure that their labor, the players, have as little power as possible. And, I mean, efforts over the years to organize players internationally so they have a seat at the table um, have been very stymied, largely because so many of the players, two reasons. One, they tend to come from um, very impoverished backgrounds. And two, they tend to be um, picked, particularly in the Global South, even before, like, their 10th or 11th birthday. Yeah. And basically become part of a pipeline into a club that's very highly professionalized, um, and frankly, just makes it difficult to then find yourself in a position uh, to organize. Yeah. And there have been certainly horror stories coming out of some of the, um, you know, youth camps that they put basically kids through, right, um, as part of this brutal training regimen. And then they end up getting, you know, not making it or just getting cast off. And it's just a really sad um, 
And Lionel Messi, who who has been in the news a lot, he's been playing so well for Argentina, probably the best player on earth, maybe the best player ever. I mean, he these stories are coming out about him. I mean, he was chosen before he was a, a teenager to to be in the Barcelona system. He's an incredibly skilled player. He was five foot three. So I mean, as a teenager, they pumped him full of growth hormones, and now he's five foot seven, and that's. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, that goes to the whole, like, you're the chef and the steak thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, just like, you know, you, you pump the, the beef full of hormones, you pump Lionel Messi full of hormones, and it makes the difference between, you see why people do it. It makes the difference between him being a, a, a multimillionaire international soccer god and him um, going to a country with where it's social mobility is, is, is a pipe dream for masses of people. Yeah. What I find really interesting is how uh, you say football and the industry of football so perfectly embodies neoliberalism. And yet, I mean, I I think of football as sort of the quintessential working class sport for so many, so many different societies and cultures. Um, And I mean, on the one hand, that's surprising. And on the one hand, on the other hand, it's not really surprising. But um, how does how does football function culturally um, as a mass? Uh, phenomenon. Um, you talk about some of the politics of individual players as well as the fans, and I was just wondering, do you see football and football subculture and and the fandom around it as a potential um, platform for some kind of social transformation or social mobilization? Because you know the the flip side always is that um, while it is an intensely working class sport, it's also tied to, um, you know, all sorts of national and racial chauvinism, violence, and things that we don't necessarily associate with progressive ideas. Oh, definitely. Definitely, definitely. I mean, what, what I say about, about football, soccer being neoliberal, I mean, I'm, I'm specifically just talking about the World Cup um, and how it operates as a tournament. I mean, Soccer is the people's game. I mean, I'm going just out to speak um, in San Francisco and Oakland tomorrow. And uh, one of the events is um, co-sponsored by a group called uh, Footballistas for Life, uh, which is a, a kind of like left-wing teaching operation run by actually a Brazilian woman named Dania Caballo as a way, and it's been very successful as, as like an educational tool um, in Oakland in some of the schools that are that have had like tons of challenges and it's, it's been really a way to reach kids and work with kids. And I think soccer is really unique in its ability to reach both women and men. I mean, it has that kind of appeal uh, and to be able to draw them in and draw them into exercise and fun and play. And obviously you don't need a lot of money to do it. You roll out a ball and you just play. And there are left-wing soccer clubs. People can go online and look at them in cities all across the United States, not even all over the world. And, and we haven't even gotten to the roles that, the soccer fan clubs, and I've written about this a lot, like played, for example, in Takir Square and the Egyptian Revolution. I mean, you've seen soccer clubs be incredibly left-wing and anti-racist, and of course you've seen soccer clubs that are fascist and vile and violent. And in Egypt, the soccer clubs, the, um, the ultras, as they're called, were the only group that was really one of the only groups, but really a significant group uh, when Mubarak was overthrown, that uh, actually had experience in street fighting and battling the police and setting up barricades. And they were able to do this, this unbelievable work there. 
I mean, so, so I think soccer is definitely a tool for, for social transformation, and it's a tool uh, for, for abject chauvinism. I mean, it, this is one of the, um, the crazy things. And that's what the thing about Brazil, too. It's like I argue this in the book, but like one of the reasons for the protests in a, in a country that supposedly, you know, worships soccer is because of the alienation from the World Cup, I think, fuels a lot of the anger that, wait, you're taking this thing that, that we love, and you're turning it against us. I mean, one of the lead banners over the weekend, and I, I just uh, retweeted this a couple hours ago, I mean, it was a huge banner, and it, it basically said, not against soccer, against exploitation, repression, evictions, deaths, and embezzlement, which is, by the way, a hell of a long banner. But, <laughs> but you know, you got, you got, they, they really wanted to make it clear. And that's yeah. not just for public relations. That, that's from the heart. Yeah. Yeah, you have a, a bit in the book where you talk about um, one of the biggest soccer stadiums that used to have standing room only seats being made over as luxury boxes. Mm-hmm. That was so, and you know, I got to go to a game in that stadium when I was in, uh, when I was in Brazil, uh, Argentina against Bosnia. So in other words, I, I was in the stadium before it got wrecked. I got to go through the stadium. This is like over the last couple of years, I got to go in the stadium as it was being sledgehammered to death. And then I was in the stadium for a game. And I mean, it was, it was really upsetting because I mean, the inside was about as sterile as uh, an Upper East Side doctor's office. I mean, it was just like, wow, this was a place that once had 225,000 people watch the final game of the 1950 World Cup. It was estimated that one-tenth of the entire city of Rio was in that one stadium watching that one game. And you compare that to the game I was at where it sat 75,000 because they took out all the open standing room only area and replaced it with both jumbotrons and luxury boxes. And, uh, and, you know, you were hard pressed to find, you know, Brazilians in the stands. I mean, it was tens of thousands of people of wealthy people from Argentina uh, who came in for, for the game. Yeah. It, it, even just the colonization of, of, uh, you know, a country's sovereign space is, is very much a feature of uh, the way FIFA conducts business. I mean, they basically turned the stadium into a special economic zone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that too, because the irony, I was at a demonstration right before I was at that game of 500 people trying to march on the stadium. And it was great. Like the, like the craziness. I mean, I kept wondering like, God, what would, what would Simon Bolivar say right now? I mean, because you had 500 Brazilians getting gassed and having live ammo shot over their heads um, by in, involved in what was then a peaceful march on a stadium in their country, 500 Brazilians, and it was all to make peace for tens of thousands of Argentinians coming into Brazil to basically conquer this space in Rio. It was just like, wow, this is, I mean, it's like the irony on top of irony. So it was almost too much. And, and I mean, if anyone ever had arguments about, you know, like class and how it operates, I mean, you saw it because, you know, the 10,000s of Argentinians were protected because they were wealthy and they were spending thousands of dollars to go to the World Cup. And the 500 Brazilians were treated like garbage because they didn't have the money to have that kind of access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to to wrap up, I, I wanted to end with um, some premonitions about Qatar because that is going to be the next, um, you know, commercial venture slash huge white elephant slash human rights 
you know, catastrophe. <laughs> so um, in your reporting on the upcoming event, um, it, it looks like, if anything, at least on the workers' rights front, um, that is looking even more devastating. Um, do you feel like things might come to a head there? Um, I, I do understand that it's in the middle of the desert, so maybe a tougher place to stage a street demonstration, but what, what, do, what can we expect, if anything? Well, I don't know about demonstrations there because, I mean, so much of Qatar, I mean, the people who would demonstrate would be the workers who are migrant workers, largely from Nepal, um, who've died in the hundreds already in building the stadiums. Um, it's an international catastrophe. I mean, ESPN, you know, which, which has, of course, is a huge stakeholder in the World Cup, did this remarkable 30-minute documentary about how workers have their passports taken away. Some are, are literally in states of slavery. In other words, they, they have to work for no money um, at, or they don't get their passport back and they can't go home. And, I mean, one of the things that got to say about that is that this is not that different from typical working conditions for Nepalese. So this isn't necessarily just a World Cup thing. I mean, this is about the way labor abuses are so rife in Qatar. Um, the, the, the real question, and I talked to a lot of journalists about this, the, 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 the sort of looming question is, is whether the World Cup's going to be pulled from Qatar. And a, a lot of people who consider themselves like very mainstream FIFA insiders are in debate about that. So there's no consensus on whether that's going to happen. But if it does happen, it'll be because international labor activists and journalists are shining as bright a light as possible as what's happening there. Because, I mean, Brazil, it was a scandal, an absolute, as it should have been, but an absolute scandal that nine people died in the building of the stadiums. The estimates are as many as 5,000 workers will die in Qatar. Yeah, it's incredible. So it, it, it's, you, you can't have a serious discussion about what's happening in Qatar right now with the World Cup, unless it's a discussion about removing the World Cup from Qatar for the very sake of, of people's lives. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess <laughs> one question I had, because we do like to end on a somewhat uplifting note, um, is there a way to do sporting mega events like the World Cup right? I mean, it seems like example after example you present in the book are just these um, enormous um, sinkholes of, <laughs> of um, filthy lucre and immorality. And I, I was just wondering if you see a way that mass sporting events can can be done in a way that really does serve the public interest and really does bring people together and isn't just purely exploitative. Oh man, you see, one of the things that makes that really hard is the, the sort of the post 9-11 security imperatives that they demand. Um, it just it creates these environments that are just like Orwell for dummies everywhere you look. Like just, just that, that makes it a little crazy. I think the only way to do it ethically would be if you had a couple of stable sites and just rotated between those sites. So then the, the construction and all the rest of it would have some sort of use value uh, as the cycles went through instead of these things where you build like in Manaus, for example, this $300 million stadium, which once again, to quote John Oliver, is going to become the world's largest bird toilet once the World Cup is over. It has no use whatsoever in Manaus. And, and so, so that, that's the problem. Uh, and I don't see how you get around that problem, especially with FIFA in charge. So, you, oh, that's actually the first thing. Like, how do you make this ethical? You got to abolish FIFA. 
because, you know, that, that otherwise you're asking Tony Soprano to take care of the neighborhood drug dealer. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but, but then we, we got to figure out ways to create an ethical uh, body to oversee international soccer that would have policies like no displacements for the World Cup, civil liberties protected for the World Cup, um, a, a, a group of tickets for the host country that are cheap for the World Cup. And you would only get that if you unwind a lot of the problems that exist in 21st century capitalism, really. And that was Dave Zirin, author of Brazil's Dance with the Devil, talking about football and the politics thereof in Brazil and beyond. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. It is our segment in which we discuss the things that caught our eye that we wish we had written this week, but ultimately did not. Take it away, Sarah. So this week, um, well, actually, I should say that Michelle and I first had picked the same piece this week. But I should also say that the piece I did pick is, is a really incredible piece of reporting by Kai Wright, who I believe is a former uh, ARG recipient at Color Lines, and it's a piece called Why Young Black Men Can't Work. And this is one of those stories that follows a single worker, um, a man named Dorian Moody, through his struggles to find work as a working class black man in America, and uses that one story to detail all of the ways in which racism and America's ongoing problem with class combine to specifically lock young black men out of work. One of the things that I really like about this piece is that while it's focusing on the struggles of black men in particular, it also talks about things like the feminization of poverty, the way the low-wage workforce is very gendered. So you see women um, in jobs like the ones we've already talked about today, in domestic work, um, working in the service sector, and you see young men expected to do um, physical labor. And the problem being that there are fewer and fewer of those physical labor jobs out there. Um, he really does a deep dive into not just this one young man's life, but into the structures that are the real reason, despite endless people wanting to talk about the pathology of the black community or whatever their line is this week, um, the real structures that are actually holding people back. Um, interesting that it sort of coincides with the My Brother's Keeper initiative, which mm-hmm. is another one of these grand executive gestures coming down from the White House. Yes. So it's a good kind of counterpoint to mm-hmm. the rhetoric Absolutely. of, you know, we must rescue young black men so they can help themselves, that right. sort of thing. All right. Um, well, um, going to a different part of the country that is also struggling, Trish Kajla has a piece at Jacobin, which um, is called Rank-and-File Environmentalism, and it discusses the relationship between the coal industry's labor movement and other progressive movements that have cropped up around environmentalism over the past generations and how they tend to sort of butt heads. And she um, sort of dispels the myth that these two are necessarily antithetical concepts, that, you know, you can have a viable environmental movement that does not totally alienate um, working-class people people and um, the labor movement in these coal fields. And she digs back in history and unearths a pretty unearths, get it? <laughs> um, and and uh, looks at a pretty uh, interesting um, uh, 
tie between environmental justice and uh, the mine workers movement going back all the way to the 60s. And she looks at some uh, radical sort of rank and file campaigns that um, managed to challenge both the existing uh, union leadership um, and some of the conservative strands within that, and also um, and also advance a vision of environmental justice that kind of twinned these two ideological threads, um, basically saying that uh, you know as energy workers um, we have the power to uh, prevent uh, the industry from screwing over workers' rights and screwing over the environment, and kind of looked at um, environmentalism on the same continuum of social justice as uh, labor rights. Um, And, you know, it's an important lesson for us to sort of look back on this and understand that the environmental movement really needs to bring along the people with the most at stake in this fight. And if you go down to the coal fields of Appalachia and some of these um, coal towns, you know, they will tell you that, um, you know, coal is very much embedded in their culture and in their society, but it's also a product of the fact that the coal industry has basically starved um, these communities and made them completely dependent on a dirty polluting industry that, by the way, um, inflicts really egregious public health and environmental harms on the local environment. So these people are living amid these conditions and they're facing it firsthand in a way that, frankly, a lot of climate change activists will never truly understand on a physical level. Um, And, you know, she goes back to a group called Miners for Democracy, which actually argued, you know, if coal could not be mined safely and cleanly, it would not be mined at all, Um, quote. And uh, they believe that environmental justice involved both workers' immediate community as well as the overall environmental quality in the world as a whole. So all this goes to show you that... um, you know, environmental activism really needs to incorporate an environmental justice framework. And frankly, there's a lot to gain from bringing uh, the public along with you. And that includes the people who toil in these fields, um, who are economically dependent on the coal industry, but also know that it shouldn't be that way on some level. And they're out there. You just have to do the work of finding them. And not only should it include them, but it can, in fact, be led by them. Exactly. That's, that's, you know, I think such a core point about Miners for Democracy is that they really did understand this as a a very important point of their organizing was that, like, this actually hurts us the most. Right. And it was a truly kind of global view at a time when the environmental movement was just getting off the ground. And there wasn't even, you know, this this framework around climate change and climate change policy that we have today. Mm -hmm. This is back in the late 60s, you know? I mean, this is when, like, people were uh, worried about the ozone layer and other stuff like that, and people were just starting to get, you know, warm to the idea of Earth Day. And you had miners in the fields who, you know, they were suffering from black lung, right? They saw their communities being destroyed, their lands being ravaged, and so they understood, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this week, we should note that um, we are still waiting on the Supreme Court to hand down its decision in a case that we talked about several episodes ago, um, Harris v. Quinn, which will decide possibly some very important things for the continued union rights of um, public sector workers, specifically public sector care workers. And we will no doubt talk about this in our next episode. But for now, we encourage you to go back and listen to our episode with Jennifer Klein and Eileen Boris talking about this issue. And we will link to that on the Descent website as we will link to everything we talked about today. And hopefully we'll have some 
not so grim news to report next time we get around to this, but yeah. well, well, <laughs> stay tuned. As always, you can send us your thoughts, questions, comments, stories, victories, defeats, if you want to share those, um, to hashtag belabored on Twitter or belabored at descentmagazine.org. And we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.